Hello, God for Grown Ups listeners. It's Dan Peterson, sharing my sermon from Queen Anne Lutheran Church's weekly audio service. Let it be with me. Mary's response to the angel Gabriel after hearing the news that she, a teenager out of wedlock, would bear a child, conceived, as we say in our creeds, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Powerful words, not simply about the Holy Spirit, but also about Mary. Words of rare agency on the part of a woman who otherwise possessed virtually no voice in her time and culture. Let it be with me. This past week we learned, thanks to an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, that Dr. Jill Biden, soon to be our nation's first lady, is not a doctor, at least according to Joseph Epstein. That irksome title, he says, sounds and feels fraudulent when used by people like Biden who hold doctorates outside of the sciences. Only medical doctors merit the designation. A wise man once said that no one should call himself a doctor unless he has delivered a child, Epstein writes. Think about it, Dr. Jill, and forthwith drop the dock. Epstein proceeds to blast the title of doctor across the humanities and social sciences. And in one or two instances, his argument has merit. He rightly criticizes the proliferation of honorary doctorates, for example. These once went to statesmen and serious scholars, he points out. Now they go to potential donors and celebrities who, unlike their predecessors, don't even bother feigning intelligence. Yet to someone looking for a substantive editorial in one of the nation's most reputable newspapers, she or he will not find it here. Much of the evidence Epstein cites is anecdotal. His claim, for instance, that the PhD may once have held prestige, but has been diminished by the erosion of seriousness and the relaxation of standards in university education generally rests, by his own admission, on the few doctoral dissertations he sat in on during his teaching days. The few. Epstein, in short, fails to make his case, even to someone like me, a former college professor inclined to agree that standards in higher education have fallen. Bitter biography and tales from a life of privilege are no substitute for a genuinely persuasive argument and evidence-based research to support it. The real problem with this editorial, however, has nothing to do with the decline and fall of higher education in America. It's the condescending, patronizing, and sexist attitude Epstein adopts toward the target of his ire, namely, the character and achievement of a woman who apparently does not know her place. 
you can hear it right from the beginning. Madame First Lady, Epstein writes, Mrs. Biden, Jill, kiddo. A bit of advice on what may seem like a small, but I think is a not unimportant matter. Let go of your title, he tells her. Doctor sounds and feels fraudulent, not to say a touch comic. Your dissertation, he adds, based simply on the title, sounds unpromising. And by the time you acquired your degree, standards in higher education had obviously fallen. Epstein's contempt for Biden and her use of the title doctor could not be more clear. His choice of words says it all, from the way he addresses her at the beginning as kiddo to the claim that she acquired rather than earned her degree. By way of conclusion, he offers the advice he promised at the outset to Biden directly, and I quote, forget the small thrill of being Dr. Jill and settle for the larger thrill of living for the next four years in the best public housing in the world as First Lady Jill Biden, end quote. In other words, lose your voice and take your place at your husband's side. Words attributed to Paul. Epstein's misogyny obviously has a long history, both in American culture specifically and Western history more broadly. The Bible is no exception and, unfortunately in this case, part of that history. In the New Testament alone, one can easily drudge up half a dozen passages to justify the subjugation and oppression and oppression rather of women. In 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, for example, we read in words attributed to Paul that a woman should, quote, learn in silence with full submission, end quote. She should not teach or have authority over a man. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, the author says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Colossians likewise tells us, in words also attributed to Paul, that wives must be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 states much the same. Wives, it says, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. So-called complementarians utilize these passages to support their claim that men and women have different but complementary roles when it comes to raising a family, navigating marriage, and church leadership. They point out that while a man, made in the image of God, has authority over his wife— made as she is in the image of man, that does not mean that he can mistreat her. After all, as Ephesians 5.33 says, each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Ephesians 5.33, quoted here, seems like an attitude an egalitarian, one who advocates for total equality in marriage, relationships, or religious leadership, irrespective of role, 
could endorse. Unfortunately, as Dr. Jennifer Bird points out in the New Testament Fortress Commentary on the Bible, the word translated as respect in the translation we use, the New Revised Standard Version, comes from the Greek word phoetai, a cognate of phobos, which means fear. This is where we get the English word phobia. A translation closer to the original Greek would indicate that while a husband should love his wife as himself, a wife, along with household slaves, should fear her husband, which is precisely what the surrounding culture encouraged. It is hard to imagine a happy marriage where a wife would fear her husband, knowing that she is merely a second-generation copy of the image of God. It is hard to imagine a happy marriage where a wife must learn in silence with full submission. Even if the Christian churches of the late first century softened the household hierarchies of the surrounding patriarchal Roman culture, they still reflected its perspective. The question is whether earlier in that century, especially in the letters scholars unanimously agree were written by Paul himself rather than attributed to him, the Christian faith taught differently. The short answer is that it did. In Christ, all are equal. I like to think of the early Christian community that Paul envisioned as an expression of budding egalitarianism, a community illuminated by the gospel and in contrast to its surrounding culture where men and women enjoyed real equality in Christ. There are two reasons why. The first is from something Paul says directly. In Galatians 3.28, he writes, There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Here we can assume that Paul understood the practical implications of this claim, that slaves should be freed, a position he advocates in Philemon with regard to a slave named Onesimus, and that men and women should enjoy equal roles in the body of Christ, the church. There, too, we have evidence. In Romans 16.7, for instance, Paul mentions a woman named Junia, whom he identifies as prominent among the apostles. He speaks as well of Prisca and Aquila, apparently wife and husband, who oversaw a house church together. In each of these cases, we see a glimpse of egalitarianism, the kind that flies in the face of the know-your-place mentality Epstein lords over Biden, the kind that later authors writing in the name of Paul countered by establishing the very gender hierarchies Paul himself destabilized. Byrd ponders why. Perhaps, quote, the freedom and empowerment that women and slaves had experienced in the early Christian movement which had been fully endorsed by Paul in his letters, might well have been perceived by outsiders as a threat to the social and political order, end quote. That fear may have crept up among the male leadership of the later first century church as well, fossilized for posterity in Colossians, Ephesians, and 1 Timothy. Let it be with me. 
The most arresting glimpses of a budding egalitarianism between the sexes in the early Jesus movement undoubtedly come from the Gospels themselves. These writings generally treat women in a positive light. They are the ones who witness Jesus' crucifixion. They are the first to discover his empty tomb, and they are the ones who support his ministry. Yet long before all these occurrences, it is Mary in today's gospel who merits our attention. Here the angel Gabriel visits her to share the news that she will conceive and bear a son. How can this be, she asks, since I am a virgin? Gabriel explains that she will become pregnant by the Holy Spirit and that her relative Elizabeth will also bear a child even though she is barren. For nothing, the angel says, will be impossible with God. One might expect Mary to have no voice in the matter. That would reflect the attitude of the surrounding culture. But things are different here. Mary has a voice, and without her consent, God's plan, it would seem, goes no further. What kind of story about a loving God, after all, would begin with a forced pregnancy? All of it, we discover, rests with her. Mary's compliance offers what Martin Luther regarded as perhaps the most noble expression of faith in the whole New Testament. Here I am, the servant of the Lord, she says. Let it be with me according to your word. But it does more than that. It also gives her a voice. She is the one who must choose, not because it is her place, but because it is her right. She has a voice, the freedom that God has given her to determine for herself whether she will participate in the unfolding of God's salvific plan or not. The Good News The good news this Christmas we discover is not only the birth of Christ, it is also the dignity, agency, and freedom Mary possesses according to our gospel reading for today. Let it be with me, she tells the angel, granting her consent, trusting in God, and initiating what later generations would eventually refer to as the greatest story ever told. Today, when men like Epstein deny the dignity and freedom of women by telling them to know their place, let us remember the example of Mary, whose choice and dignity were respected by no less than God. This is her gospel, and this is the gospel of our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can hear the full audio service at QueenAnneLutheran.org. You can also subscribe to the Queen Anne Lutheran podcast wherever you listen. I'll be back soon with another episode of God for Grownups. Ups.